You are listening to the Sermon Podcast from the Vandalia Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas. We are a community that believes in the value of all people. You can find out more about us at www.vandalia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Vandalia Church. So we are in Matthew 22. Uh, before, but before we get to that, I want to tell you um, about something that happened in the early 20th century. In 1905, in Los Angeles, at what came to be known as the Azusa Street Revival, a guy named William Seymour, he was a one-eyed son of former slaves, he organized this grand public worship service. And it was a wild and chaotic affair. There was tongue-speaking and flamboyant worship, stories of miracles, of divine healing. And there was immediate criticism condemning this revival and the movement that grew out of it. Pentecostalism. A reporter for the Los Angeles Times said about it, breathing strange utterances and mouthing a creed which it would seem no sane mortal could understand, the newest religious sect has started in Los Angeles. Many shunned them as crazy, If Alexander Campbell, one of the the founding fathers of the the Restoration Movement, out out of which Churches of Christ came, if Alexander Campbell had been alive when this happened, he would have referred to the group as enthusiasts. And he was not a supporter of enthusiasm. I grew up hearing all sorts of stories about Pentecostals, how they were heretics, They were out of control. They were just downright bizarre. Um, But there's one other detail that stands out about this movement and the revival that sparked it. As one other reporter put it at the time, it involved a disgraceful intermingling of races. End quote. This revival was one of the first movements in this country to move towards racial diversity and also the inclusion of women in prominent public roles. Now, what does this have to do with our texts for today? Well, let's read from Matthew 22 and see if we can find a connection. This is a picture, some pictures from the time, from the the paper at the time. Weird babble of tongues, reads another headline. All right, so Matthew 22, verse 34 and following. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, that is a teacher of the Jewish law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, what does it mean to love God with everything that we are? First, notice that this is a command, which means it's not merely a feeling or an emotion. Emotions and feelings aren't things that can be commanded. I don't flip an internal switch to feel sadness or grief or happiness or anger. These are parts of me that are passive. They respond to what's happening outside of me. Something happens, someone does something in front of me, and I react. I'm caused to have an emotion. Love, however, at least the way he's using this word here, love is not merely a feeling. It's rooted in the will, in my choices, in my inclination to devote myself to one thing rather than to another. It's not passive. It's active. It's something I choose to extend outward from myself towards some thing or some person or towards God. I choose to extend myself to commit, to devote myself to that thing. And the first question is, what is actually worthy of that sort of commitment, that sort of devotion? The Christian community is the community that, that says God is the one worthy of that sort of commitment. God is the one to whom I can devote the whole of myself and my life. God and no one else and no thing else is the one in whom we can live and move and have our being. But there's something special, something unique about making God the object of our absolute devotion. In every other case, in making anything else the object of our absolute devotion, all other things are excluded, at least from that part of, you, part of me, that part of my love. I have to choose between them. I love money. I love my friends. I love my family. I love my job. I love black tie cupcakes. I secretly love the 1986 cult classic film Highlander. I love some of these things more than others. And this means that those other things are excluded. They're left out, displaced, moved aside by the things that I love more. So if I love money more than anything else, I may care about other things, but the other things will always be sacrificed and displaced by my love for money. 
If I love my political party, if I love my television, if I love people with the same color skin and the same amount of money as, I, as myself, if I love my car or my home or my timeshare or my job above all else, that love will exclude and push aside all the other things that I care about, ultimately. That sort of love, love for something like that, can never embrace. It certainly can't increase my love for other things or other people. It can only stand next to or over my concern for those other things or other people. And I think it's very possible and very common for us to do the same thing with what we think of as our love for God. When we think of our love for God, we may think of our worship of God, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the warm feelings we get when we hear a song that we love or witness a baptism or a wedding or something. And there's something really good and important about that. But it can be easy for us to think that that's the end of the story, that our love, that that is our love for God. I read my Bible, I go to church, I pray my prayers, I sing my songs. That means I love God. And if I feel all the feelings while engaging in all those activities, then that means I love God even more. In fact, I might even begin to think that my goal should be feeling all the feelings, having that emotional high. I can gauge my level of spirituality over time by measuring the the frequency and intensity of those emotional highs. It's easy, in other words, to cut Jesus' words off. But notice what's striking about what Jesus says here. It's not just that he adds the phrase taken from the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. What's striking is that he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, either this is a contradiction, or there's something special about the love we're called to have for God. If the love of God were like the love of other things, then it would not be possible both to love God with all of ourselves and to love my neighbor as myself. There wouldn't be any room left for for loving my neighbor if loving God were like loving other things and I were commanded to give all of my love to God. If I direct all of it towards God, then I don't have any left for other people. It seems then that in order to make sense out of this passage, out of what Jesus is saying, then there must be something special about this particular type of love that we're called to have for God. It must be that the all-encompassing love we're called to have for God isn't like the type of love that we direct towards other things. Our love for God does not exclude or push aside or displace the love we're called to have for other people. Just the reverse. It embraces it, it inspires it, it animates it, it feeds the love we're called to have for other people. In the same way, the father in Luke 10, in the story of the prodigal son, he doesn't either breathe or run to embrace his prodigal son. It's not that he has to choose between two competing activities. His breath is what enables him to run and embrace his prodigal son. 
There's a parallel here. If the love, it follows that the love of our neighbors is a part of and a manifestation of, a reflection, an outgrowth of the love of God that consumes all of our being. Our love for God is not to be one thing or one love next to all the other loves in our lives, one compartment in our minds, one section or one room in the edifice of our lives. To change the analogy, it's not one more fish next to all the others, it's the ocean. It's not one more car next to all the others, it's the highway. It's not one more star next to all the rest, it's the night sky. Jesus fleshes this out pretty clearly again a few chapters later in the 25th chapter of Matthew. Love for our neighbors is love for Christ. Love for the marginalized is love for and connection to God. Insofar as you loved and served and connected to the least of these, he says, you did it also to me. But there's something here that I think it's easy for us to gloss over or ignore which is the fact that the converse is also true. Loving my neighbor is not just an optional appendix to my love for God. Failure to love my neighbor, failure to love those who are on the margins of our society, failure to show real love and care and solidarity means that no matter how many times I say or sing that I love God with all my heart, No matter how much of scripture I have memorized, no matter how many prayers I pray, I do not, in fact, have love for God. This love for my neighbors is a necessary condition for my having love for God. If the choices I make show my apathy toward my neighbors, if the choices I make result in harm to my neighbors, if the priorities of my life do not involve actively seeking the good of my neighbor, the neighbor who has no power or authority over me, the neighbor to whom I owe nothing, the neighbor who doesn't sign my paychecks, the neighbor whom I can easily ignore or harm without any consequence or loss to myself. If I don't actively seek their good, then no matter how many warm emotional highs I have on Sunday mornings, no matter how kind and generous I am to those who look just like me and have the same level of power and status as me, then I do not have love for God. The same message emerges from one of the other texts for today in the lectionary. It's from Leviticus 19. It's one of the source passages in the Old Testament for Jesus' words, to love our neighbors as ourselves. The context of that verse in Leviticus 19 is that the ancient Jews were commanded to create a system of public care for the poor and the hungry. They were to organize their planting and their harvesting processes with the poor in mind, planning and intending to leave food for those who needed it. They were to organize their communities around justice and fairness, to actively avoid partiality in the markets and in the courts, to be inclusive of foreigners and strangers. It says, when the alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall not cheat in measuring length, weight, or quantity. You shall have honest balances, honest weights. I am the Lord your God. 
Notice the connection again. Their covenantal relationship with God is expressed, is manifest in their active love towards their neighbors, in loving them as they love themselves. And I want to flesh that out just briefly. What does it mean to love another as I love myself? We all love ourselves. That's not to say that we always like ourselves, but we do always seek what seems good to ourselves. We do always try to fulfill all of our own desires, despite all our own failings and flaws and foibles. We incline ourselves toward our own wishes and our own wholeness and flourishing, no matter what. We value ourselves not because of some utility, but, as C.S. Lewis says, just because each of us is a self. And the trick is to see the other is just as much a self, deserving of love, not because of their use to me or their power over me or their ability to please me. That would be to place their value not in them, but in what we get out of them. That would be to value my neighbor not for their own sake, but for the sake of what's on the other side of them, what they produce. But if this is right, then this overturns our entire system of valuing people. It's not just the productive members of society, whatever that means, that are deserving of our active love. We don't just value people insofar as they can be useful to us or anybody else. We, We value everyone just because they are all selves. They're all selves just as much as I am a self. And I'm commanded to extend to their selfhood the same affection and devotion that I extend to myself. Now, there are many ways that we can imagine working this out in our lives, in our communities, but I want to bring us back to the example of the the Pentecostals. I'm not saying we should be Pentecostals, but I grew up thinking that they were out of their minds, that they had gotten too wrapped up in their worship to think straight. But now what stands out to me most clearly is that in my own life, I might be the one who's too wrapped up in my own worship to see that I had divorced, I had separated my love for God from my love for my neighbors. I was the one who failed to see that insofar as I failed to love the least of these, I didn't have the love for God that I thought I did. What stands out to me now about that Azusa Street revival is that they serve as just one example of Christian community where it was obvious and clear to them that to love and worship God meant connecting with their neighbors in ways that shattered boundaries everyone else thought were indestructible. Their love for God enabled and inspired them to reshape their minds and their lives in ways defined by loving their neighbors as themselves. Let's pray together. God, you are worthy of all our praise We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see as you see. Open our ears that we might hear as you hear. Open our minds and our hearts that we might know and love as you love. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, bind us together, and empower us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray all things through Christ our Lord. Amen.